Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to a special Future of Education panel discussion. We have Stephen Downs, Howard Gardner, Alfie Cohen, and Gary Sega here to talk about education reform, progressive education, and anything else that they want to talk about. Uh, this is part of futureofeducation.com, but also a part of the Connected Educator Month and a prelude to the Learning 2.0 conference. And we really appreciate you being here and our panelists being here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. Coming up, uh, we do have the Learning 2.0 free virtual conference. That's August 20th to the 24th. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, some of the people who couldn't make it to this panel or the the original kickoff for Connected Educator Month are coming. So we have Mark Prensky coming. We have Sugata Mitra coming. We have Yang Zhao coming. Uh, a lot of fun. And we want you to come and we want you to present. So this is peer professional development. So please go to learning20.com, check it out, and submit a proposal to present. The uh, whole idea is to have another one of these great worldwide virtual events. This is Connected Educator Month. Uh, so much going on there. ConnectedEducatorMonth.org. Maybe Peggy will help me by putting that link in the chat as well. Uh, so much fun so far. So much more yet to come. Don't miss the Library 2.012 conference October 3rd through 5th and the Global Education Conference uh, November 12th to 16th. If you um, are interested, we have lots of shows here at futureofeducation.com. Uh, we're not sure Rudy Crew is coming tomorrow. He took a new job and we haven't heard back from him, but if he is, he's going to talk about his book, Only Connect. Um, Roger Shank on Cognitive Science, Paulo Blickstein from Stanford on Fab Labs, uh, David Warlick, uh, Mark Prensky, Rob Fried, Lee Rainey, Esther Wazisky, Zhang Zhao. You can see the great list here. Hopefully something of interest to you. Again, all free and all available for your either real-time attendance or in recorded form. If you've missed any of our sessions, they, they are all recorded. Uh, we heard from Connie Yao, Larry Johnson, Doug Rushkoff, and Chris Lehman and Deborah Meyer, all as part of the Connected Educator Month kickoff. Uh, before then, David Dubelbeis and I talked about uh, Ning as a uh, platform for social networks for education. Um, anyway, lots there. Over 300 interviews now. Again, hopefully something of value to you. So this is your chance now to let us know where you're participating from. To the left of the whiteboard, you should see some icons. You're looking for the star, the second one down. Double click on that and then click on the map and feel free to put in the chat where you're participating from. Fun audience. If this is your first time using Blackboard Collaborate and you don't know this trick, you definitely want to pull that chat window out and make it larger. So you double click at the top of the chat and drag it out. Or you can um, look for the options menu and detach the panel. But it makes a big difference to not be trying to read that chat in the tiny little box that's the default box. I see that Alan is here. Lima, Peru. What a nice 
worldwide audience. Now, I received some criticism about this panel for not being gender diverse. It's also North America centric, but I hope you'll accept uh, my apologies and also that you'll notice that we've tried to do a, a lot of diversity in Connected Educator Month uh, and all the other events. So you may have to live with a little bit of, um, well, a lack of diversity in this session, but hopefully made up for by the value of what we're going to talk about. I'm really excited to have these four together and I'm so appreciative of you all for attending. <laughs> Very funny comments. Okay, so let's move right ahead. There is a Mighty Bell space for this session. If you haven't played with Mighty Bell yet, it's Gina Bianchini's new project. I really love it. Full disclosure is that I am consulting for Gina like I did for Ning. Um, but it is free for education and for everybody, and it's a great place to uh, aggregate resources of sort of curation and conversation. So feel free to join this one, which is the Reform Ed Reform space, and contribute and let us you know, pull in uh, web links, videos, and the like that you think relate to the topic today, and continue conversation afterwards. So again, what a delight to have the four of you here. What I'd like to do, if we can, is to start off with having each of you do a, a brief introduction, say a half minute to a minute long, um, give some background about yourself, and, and then if you would answer this question as a part of it, how would you characterize the state of the public discussion around education right now? So Stephen, could we start with you? Oh, sure. Start with me. I didn't even get the question written. <laughs> um, Do you want me to repeat it? No, it's, uh, I can remember it. Um, uh, I hope. If, if I forget it, I'll ask you to repeat it. But something like, how would you characterize the public discussion around education right now? Sounds right. Anyhow, for Correct. those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Stephen Downs. I live in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, and that's on the east coast of Canada. I'm about 20 kilometers from the water. I've just spent the last two weeks in Prince Edward Island camping by the seashore, so uh, I'm a little still in vacation mode, as you can probably tell by looking at me. I work with the National Research Council in Canada. Um, as a uh, researcher in online learning, what that entails is not always clear, but um, the things I'm more known for are my newsletter called OL Daily, which stands for Online Learning Daily, <coughs> excuse me, um, as well uh, with George Siemens, Dave Cormier, Rita Kopp, and an, a, a cast of thousands. Uh, we've put together the massive open online courses, and that's a concept that in an altered form has become very current recently. I've been involved in open education and open educational resources for a number of years, and uh, of course e-learning and online learning for a number of years. And I have four cats, one of which was here eating my tuna, but with the tuna gone, so was the cat, and the three others around somewhere. Um, how would I characterize the state of educational discourse right now? Uh, disjointed, garbled, uh, disunified, 
there isn't a consistent theme. There's a lot of activity around distributed and online learning. Some of that for good, some of that for less than good. I think there is a significant effort underway to privatize education generally, and that's that's a trend I would resist. And uh, at the same time, new technologies and new models are offering us opportunities to provide learning or help people provide themselves with learning to a much greater uh, student body than ever before. And I'll leave it there for now. Thank you, Stephen. Howard, can I ask you to do the same? You need to click on the talk button to turn your mic back on. Okay. Are you hearing me? Yes, thank you. Good. Um, Howard Gardner, I teach at Harvard, have been at Harvard for many years. I started out as a research psychologist, <clears throat> but then I moved more into education, particularly K-12 education. And the last few years, I've been trying to understand the digital landscape, working with some very good colleagues, and I guess that's why I've been asked to participate today in this webinar. From the point of view of the discussion about education, I'm going to restrict it to um, the United States. I would say the public political discussion of education is uh, very off-putting. It's almost entirely about test scores and ranking and everything that looks like it may raise test scores and make us look better than other countries in uh, PISA or TIMS gets praised. Everything else gets um, denigrated. But even though we've been having this conversation for 20 years and lots of money's been put into it, um, I don't think anybody would say there's been a, a quantum leap of improvement. But when there's no other public conversation, that's the one that uh, dominates. Um, my own focus, which may or may not represent other people today, is we ought to be having as our figure, the dominant uh, figure, the kind of society we want to have and the kind of human beings we want to have. And while I wouldn't say that uh, people in public life aren't I'm interested in those questions, they don't connect it to education. For them, education is improving scores on STEM tests and not the kind of society that we want to have and not the kind of human beings we want to have. So my own focus within the digital world has been very much on, on digital ethics, digital citizenship, how can we <clears throat> make use of these incredible new creating and collaborating mechanisms to you know, have a more responsible polity? Um, and uh, it's to me very disappointing that that's not something you ever hear anybody running for office speaking about. I recognize the names and the people who you invited to speak, and these are all people who are very much rooted in conversation among the digitalati, um, but that's, a, that's still very much an in-house conversation. Um, it's not one that you hear people in public office talking about, except to say we, we should be connected and have broadband, uh, especially if somebody else pays for it. <coughs> Thank you. Alfie, are you there? I am, yes. I might even be here on a video sense. I'm not sure. Can you see me as well as hear me? 
Okay, can you taste me and smell me? Because I'm not satisfied with only two dimensions. The 21st century learning requires all five senses, otherwise it's not worth talking. Um, I, uh, I agree with what, with what Howard has said. The discussion that we have um, about education is only as good as the way that discussion is framed by the people who have ready access to the means of communication. So if public officials and corporate officials and the corporate media have framed the conversation about education in a particular way, uh, then it's likely that we will ask some questions and studiously avoid uh, others. Um, and the default assumptions, uh, the things we take for granted because we've never been invited to reflect on them, uh, turns out to be the, um, the limits, the barriers, the boundaries to anything we talk about. So for example, if no one invites most people to rethink whether education could be more than just transmitting a set of facts or skills to passive receptacles, then nobody's likely to look around at schools and say, how come they're still characterized by worksheets and lectures and quizzes and tests and grades and homework just as they were 20 years ago and 50 years ago uh, because we think that's what school has to be. And if nobody has said standardized tests tend to measure what matters least um, and there are more meaningful and less destructive ways to assess individual students as well as whole schools, then the public discussion will just uh, be based on a sort of monosyllabic grunting of test scores go up, that's good. Um, and if the larger public conversation assumes that government is always a bad thing and the free market delivers results, then we will be inherently suspicious about um, the great democratic public institution of, uh, of education in this country and we'll look for ways to undermine its public status or be receptive uh, to people who attempt to do that, which is exactly what we're seeing now um, in the name of choice and, and so on. So, oh, and two other, I guess, default assumptions that drive the conversation, again, because few people have asked us to question are, number one, the belief that to assess means we have to measure, which is to say that uh, everything can and should be quantified. So we don't even ask anymore, how do you assess student learning or teaching quality? We're already at the stage of saying, how do we measure it, which has a detrimental impact on the assessment and on what we do. And the other one is, which I think Howard alluded to, is the idea of competition conflating excellence with beating people so that it's all about how much better my school's doing than yours, my state than yours, or my country than yours. It's about ranking. And as long as we're thinking about um, uh, who's beating whom, uh, everybody ends up losing. Thanks, Alfie. Gary? Yeah, hi, Steve. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be with old friends and people I admire. And I would like to also add that I um, fully concur with what Howard and Alfie just said. Um, I've worked in education for the past 30 years trying to help teachers make sense of a world in which there are remarkable opportunities 
for the construction of knowledge afforded by by computers and related peripherals and um, and wondrous materials to allow us to learn not only what we've always wanted kids to learn, maybe with greater efficiency or efficacy or comprehension, but to do and have experiences, which are the basis for education, um, in domains that were just impossible a few years ago. So um, I, I created the Constructing Modern Knowledge Summer Institute to create a space where educators could have four days to come together and learn by doing in, in a modern context. Um, and where we could build bridges between the great thinking and progressive education and the remarkable um, digital opportunities that are available to us as as a intellectual laboratory vehicle for self-expression. I've taught everything from the preschool level through the doctoral levels, worked as an education journalist, speaker, author, academic. Um, I, I'm pessimistic and optimistic about the current current state of education dialogue and policy. Um, on the one hand, we're clearly in a period of dark ages and increasing increasing helplessness among educators. Paradoxically, at the very same time, that there are opportunities to know and do in ways that were unimaginable um, in some cases just a few years ago. I just saw Gore Vidal's remarkable play, The Best Man on Broadway for the Fourth Time. And there was one line that I that I wrote down feverishly during the play that I think sums up a lot of my thoughts about Connected Edu Educator Month and a lot of the gee wizardry on the part of um, the um, Digerati that, that Howard alluded to. And in the play, one of the characters says, I like the way you always manage to state the obvious with a sense of real discovery. We need to recognize as progressive educators that we stand on the shoulders of giants, that every problem in education has been solved somewhere before, and that we need to band together and raise our voices um, and ensure that the forces of darkness don't fill the void and make schools mind-numbing, soul-killing places for children. Um, perhaps the best thing we can do is wake up every morning and ask ourselves, how do we make this the best seven hours of a kid's life? Gary, you turned your mic off, so I think you're done. Are you still there? Gary, were you done? You got it. So this has been really interesting to hear these views. Uh, um, I'm especially interested, sort of, as Gary kind of brings things full circle here and reminding us of uh, how much good work has been done over many, many years. So, Alfie, I'd like to start with you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask some sort of leading questions, and then hopefully I'll direct them to a particular panelist. And other panelists, if you would like to respond to the same question, I hope you'll raise your hand. So that's the third icon over. It's the hand icon, and let me know you're interested as well. So if 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 there has been really good work done in the past, and um, that it's important to recognize that. And yet, sort of consistently, progressive or alternative education ideas ha have never become the main narrative. Alfie, do you think there's a moment here in terms of the internet and technology, a moment where our ability to gather 140 people together, even if it is in a little bit of an echo chamber, 
do you think there is the potential for more visibility or a change because of the technology? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I have not made educational technology a centerpiece of my own research and thinking the way some people have. Um, I think, and actually when it comes to the, the role of technology in education, when I do think about it, I end up sounding uh, disconcertingly moderate, certainly uncharacteristically so for me, um, where I tend instinctively not to side with people who think, yes, this is the great moment, the great awakening, the great opportunity that we've never had before, Twitter and Facebook and various other social media and classroom technologies. Uh, I tend to be skeptical of many of those things. Like, like Gary, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned about the kind of technology like interactive whiteboards that just cement into place the old-fashioned teacher-centered view of learning except with new bells and whistles attached. On the other hand, I don't take the view that this is uh, the devil's creation and no child should be looking at a computer until age 10 or something of that sort. But it, your question isn't just about, as I understand it, uh, Steve, about, about technology in the classroom or technological ways of connecting educators, but ways of making political change. And, you know, I, I don't have any special expertise here. Uh, it appears that people can connect more quickly, albeit sometimes more superficially. But if we have problems in recognizing what's wrong with the status quo, or a lack of imagination in thinking about what we could have instead, then no amount of uh, facile and speedy connection is going to lead us to make change. Interesting. Howard, how about you? Uh, do you agree with Gary that um, every problem has been solved before? And can you see a way to uh, bring us into to a better public discourse? Okay, well, two separate questions. Um, I don't agree with Gary that um, people who wrote about education or who demonstrated things in the pre-digital era could really anticipate both the opportunities and the, um, the barriers and the obstacles which we face in the first decade, second decade of the century. I think in this sense it's a new ballgame. It's as different as when writing was introduced thousands of years ago or when print was introduced hundreds of years ago. Um, if, if Gary only meant that um, you know, the, the best writers about and thinkers about education, whether it's John Dewey or Socrates or, or Pestalozzi, um, hit upon important aspects of motivation, of transmission of knowledge, of creation of knowledge, of forming a community that's viable, then yeah, I don't think that um, that there's anything radically new. But let me just give one example of why I think um, the old um, views aren't enough. And that is that until recently, um, it was inconceivable that you could create, create a bit of information and you would have no idea of where it would go or how long it would last. And you could do this as, as early as the age of four or five when there was no possible way of knowing um, what the implications were for what you were doing. Um, by the same token, to use a very different example, you have a man named Saul Khan, who um, nobody heard of three years ago, and who now has created, um, from his point of view, a whole curriculum 
um, thousands of courses open, visited by millions and millions of people who at least have the impression that they're learning something. And again, this is something that would have been inconceivable. So in that sense, I do think we have to revisit every question. We have to reframe classical views of education and progressive views of education in terms of the connectedness, the constructive possibilities, and the destructive possibilities, which would have been imaginable, unimaginable in my parents' generation. Um, now, as to your second question, changing the public discourse, um, you know, it would be nice to have some people running for office who would actually say what they thought. More um, energy. <laughs> um, but I think something different is going to happen. Namely, the people who do understand the new media and their potentials will either change schools quite radically or more likely will, continue, will, will pursue education outside of school because there's less and less reason to go for seven hours a day if you have a rather selfish and singular-minded view of what it means to know and construct. And this may end up creating an elite of knowledge producers and transformers but one which has even less social conscience than nowadays because um, they won't even have to spend seven hours a day with anybody who they don't want to spend seven hours with. And so the, the democratic heart of, of education, which I know others on the panel will embrace, you know, the Dewey view is going to become less and less necessary and I think that's, um, that's, that's, that's disastrous. I was thinking that probably everybody on the panel and most of the people who participate in, in these discussions are politically on the left side uh, rather than on the right side. I, some of the commentators may not be. Um, and yet, um, it is the people who are more on the political right who fully understand the power of the digital media in the entrepreneurial sector, um, but could care less about what goes on in the vast public school system, and many of them would like to get rid of it. So that, that's part of my thought about the, the public sphere, as you asked. Steve? Steve, can I jump in for a second? It's Gary. Steve's audio was cut out, so you might as well jump in. Okay, yeah. I, I agree with both Alfie and Howard again. Um, I don't view computers as a way of, of measuring student engagement with galvanic bracelets as Bill Gates um, is proposing or tracking every nanosecond of what a teacher utters in a classroom and then testing the children for their ability to binge and purge. I'm talking about it as a constructive medium which, which enables greater democracy and collaboration, but more importantly for a wider range and breadth and depth of projects to exist than have ever been possible before. Um, you and I both spoke at the Maker Fair in May in the Bay Area where 100,000 children and adults, experts and novices came together to celebrate invention and creation and making things together. And there were landscapes made of masking tape and computer embedded origami and fire breathing machines and everything in between. And there was a remarkable um, spirit of, of the, the metaphor Papert used of a Samba school of old and young learning together, of making things. Of, of learning by doing, of constructing knowledge, 
And I, I see that as a really positive trend that hasn't really broken through to the mainstream media, despite the fact that two magazine covers in June featured cover stories on summer tech projects for you to do with your children, which I saw as a very positive um, development. The, the downside of that discussion, and it's, it's related to what um, Howard said, is that most of the folks in attendance had simply given up on school. That these folks who are part of this burgeoning um, field of learning by doing, of bringing old craftsmanship to new technologies and a spirit of cooperation and barn building and creativity and artistry, um, just didn't think that education had, had a role to play in the future. Um, I'm not quite so pessimistic. You know, the, the school is still where the kids are, and that's why I'm dedicating as much energy and time as I can to try to create those kinds of rich experiences in schools um, because that's where we benefit the most kids. Yeah, it's funny to hear a saying like schools where the kids are. I, I'd rephrase it as schools are where the kids are forced to be. Uh, there, there's, there's twin issues here. There, there's the one issue characterized by the question, has every problem been solved before? And I think the answer to that is no. And I think in some very knowable ways the answer is no. The uh, second question, and this come up in various ways, revolves around the whole question of changing the public discourse. And that ranges from the question that uh, was put at the outset uh, I think by Alfie, what sort of society do we want to the concept of uh, engagement and democracy that has been raised more recently. I think it's important if we talk about educational technology and we have to talk about educational technology today when we talk about education to distinguish between different types of technologies. And I'll make a rough and ready distinction, the distinction between mass technologies and creative technologies. Mass technologies are the ones that you hear about all the time. Uh, social networks, Facebook, Twitter, uh, as well as YouTube, as well as the new massive online courses offered by Coursera, the uh, Stanford AI course, and all of the rest of it. Creative technologies are the ones we often don't hear about. Uh, they're the ones that are used by fewer people. They're the ones where people create their own environment rather than inhabiting another environment. Uh, they are the technologies that are implicated in construction and destruction, change and progress. I draw this distinction because I think that the road for education lies in the latter, lies in the creative, and therefore I align with Gary Steger in this respect, and in many, with many others, uh, Seymour Papert uh, among them. Uh, I also see this creative technology as being essential to democracy, but not essential to democracy in the sense of changing the discourse. The concept of changing the discourse, the concept of defining a society we want is a mass kind of discussion. And I think we do students and education a disservice if we think of education as a mass kind of phenomenon. 
This is why the technology and the new technology is so important. We've always had technology in education. Uh, from the very moment we went from voice to quill or voice to rock on stone or whatever, uh, the technologies we have been using have been mass technologies. That's exactly what the school system is, is a mass technology. And we all know this. Uh, and, and that's why we use mass broadcasting technologies like books, uh, like standardized curriculum, etc., in order to produce mass results. But those are, to my view, the antithesis of democracy, or at the very best, a democracy created by counting. The newer technologies are, you know, to, it's not a cliche, they're, they're network technologies, but more significantly, they're technologies that enable individuals as autonomous, diverse individuals to create. Now, this is not individualism of the Ayn Rand kind or the libertarian kind or anything like that. That's just another face of massivism. Massivism? Whatever. Uh, this is a type of individualism where people are connected together and where the value of the whole is created through the diversity and the autonomy of the individual. And I think if we're going to look at where education ought to be headed and how to change, if you will, the public discourse, we ought not be focused on politicking and mass media and changing the discourse. I think we should be focused on the networks, enabling the networks, enabling creativity, enabling the connections to be formed, and allowing people themselves to form their own dis their own discourse, allowing each individual in society to define for him or herself what kind of society he or she wants. And there's no need for a consensus. There's just need for a connection. Alfie, has uh, Stephen addressed this in a way that gives you a new perspective? How would you respond to Stephen's description of the potential of the technology as a creative force? Well, this I don't I don't disagree with anything that I've heard. Uh, you know, there's a problem when you get a bunch of people together who who think about the larger issue a lot for a living and in their spare time, where each person thinks, of course, I'm grappling with the key issues and everybody else is a little bit off the point. You know, they're, they're on the margin and that's all very nice, but I have to come back to what I said, which is the center of things. And I don't want to do that. I just want to say that I'm tempted to do it because I don't think about technology as much as I think about teaching and learning and curriculum and assessment and human development. Um, and educational psychology. So uh, the kind of technology he, he describes makes, makes good sense to me. Um, my, I would want to make the point that technology is not neutral, uh, which I, I don't want to create a straw man. I haven't heard anybody say that today. But there is a tendency to think that it's just a tool, and it all depends on how we use it. And I think we know that often that's, that's not the case, uh, that what we are counting and whether we choose to count 
that is measure in the first place, or how we talk to each other, or whether we're in the same room when we discuss issues, itself can have an impact on the substance of our conversation and ultimately even on our thinking. Uh, that's a point that has been made by, 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 by many people over the years, um, uh, from Neil Postman's uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death to Nicholas Carr's recent book, The Shallows. Uh, and the other point I want to make is that ultimately, either learning is going to be a, an active and an interactive process where students are creating meaning uh, for themselves and with one another, or it's still going to be the same traditional notion of uh, acquiring a bunch of facts. And I can imagine a constructivist and a behaviorist approach to teaching in an old-fashioned classroom where nothing is digital. And I can imagine and have seen both a constructivist and a behaviorist approach in a brand new, digitally enhanced, super shiny, nuclear-tipped, laser-powered classroom, too. So the fundamental question is, what are questions about human nature, about child development, and about pedagogy, at least for me? Uh, more than they are about what kind of technology and, and how we apply it. Howard, your hand is raised. Would you like to respond? Right. Um, if I understand what, what Stephen said, I don't agree with it. Um, so I, I'll say what I think, and he's welcome to respond. Um, it seems to me that you know, if you're trying to decide um, what you think about a movie, it's fine to have everybody weigh in with, with what they think, because in the end, you make your own decision about a movie. In any kind of community, very serious issues arise. Uh, arise. It arises in any kind of a professional community. What does it mean to do good journalism, to be a decent lawyer, to be a, a fair physician or engineer? In any kind of a community where people live together, geographically or in a school, or even in a cyber community, um, there needs, there needs to be um, agreement about what's the proper thing to do, what's okay, and what strikes at the heart of the community, like in school, you know, plagiarism or cheating, or teachers showing favorites, or um, you know, um, people trying to curry favor with the political um, sphere. And what I recommend there, and I recommend it in a digital era, is the creation of commons, common spaces where people discuss these different issues, indicate what they've done, try to get feedback on them, try to figure out how they could be done better, and eventually try to reach some kind of consensus about what's acceptable in a community, whether it's a geographic community like a school or a professional community like journalism. And the notion in the 21st century, when we are in a global world, that every place can, or every individual can have their own financial system, their own legal system, their own medical system, which is the extension of what Stephen said, um, strikes me to be quite destructive. Um, one big question, which I've wrestled with a lot, is whether these kinds of commons enterprises can take place online. I hope they can, but they may need to take place face to face, in which case we are back to a digital world. Um, so, Stephen, since I've come down very hard on what I heard you say, please let me know what you heard me say.
Stephen, did you want to respond or shall I keep going? Let, let me just make a, a couple of remarks and, and you know, I, I think I think we can it's easy now let me let me just respond directly to Gary and I'll come back to, to Alfie's caricatures of technology later if necessary. But uh, I hear this a lot. I, I hear the proposition that was the core proposition of Gary's remark that in any kind of community there needs to be some sort of agreement. And it's this agreement around which all of the educational system seems to revolve uh, from, from curriculum to pedagogy, etc., etc. And I ask, why does there need to be agreement? That, that's the, the primary challenge I would pose. Agreement in order to communicate with each other, sure, in order to reach agreement, so we have a nice happy little circle there, or agreement in order to form the parameters of a society such that we don't kill each other. That one I can agree with. But there are different types of agreement. There's Agreements on values, objectives, goals, meanings, that sort of thing, um, shared meanings, if you will, which I would call semantic agreement. And then there's agreement on infrastructure, connections, uh, principles of association, etc., which I would call syntactic agreement. We need syntactic agreement, just like we need the air in common in between us in order to have any possibility of communication at all. But it doesn't follow that we need semantic agreement. It doesn't follow that we need to all have the same view of society, all have the same uh, objectives, all have the same goal. And in fact, I think it's better if we don't. That's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is this idea that we need common spaces in order to have these discussions. If you put everybody on the internet in a common space, the result would be anarchy. Nobody would be able to be heard because we would have a cacophony of a billion voices speaking all at once. So we know right off the bat that there is not a common space, that these spaces are divided and subdivided and subdivided and subdivided. And so you have websites, bulletin boards, chat areas, sessions like this, and so on. In order to create these subdivided spaces, you don't need common spaces, properly supposed. You only need common interfaces. And that's, in fact, how this discussion is working here. We don't have a common space, even though it almost kind of looks like it. We're not inhabiting a common space. There is no space that we have in common here. There's barely any meaning that we have in common here. But what we do have is a common interface. We have ways of sending signals with each other such that the what I send is more or less received by you in the form that I sent it. And I think that works in society as well. And it doesn't matter if I have an ASUS screen and a Microsoft keyboard and a Hewlett Packard computer and you have an Apple and you have an iPhone or whatever. It doesn't matter if I use my computer for work and you use your computer mostly for your children 
what matters is that we have a way of connecting together that does not require us to be all the same. And it's only in that kind of form that we will get democracy. I know that sounds like it's all way off the topic of education and progressive education, but I really think personally that this is at the heart of the distinction between what might be called new progressive education uh, as opposed to, I don't know, traditional, I don't want to say old, uh, traditional progressive education. I'd say for conservative progressive education, but that would confuse all of the Canadians. Um, and it's it's just it's this distinction between wanting to form some sort of single view, a single banner under which we all march forward, and and wanting to find the society in which we enable each individual as individuals to accomplish the most that they can. And uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. And I didn't throw you under the bus, Kerry. I, I just disagreed with you. <laughs> okay. I, this is fascinating to me. I, I loved what uh, Howard said about uh, places for conversation. And each of you have worked for decades here around ideas that could be called progressive. Um, and is there something uh, is there something to consider here when we have an enormous group of people who have been participating in web technologies, who have been creators from the open source movement to web 2.0 to to maker movement? If uh, if there's value in that conversation, and we have a, a large group of people who are coming in inclined toward constructivist, progressive ideas because of these experiences, what can we do to help facilitate those conversations in a way that benefits um, the larger dialogue? Is there anybody who would want to respond to that? Hi, um, I'm. I'm going to speak to, speak to this, um, Howard here. Um, I think that much of the um, individual educational goals of progressive education, some of which Stephen mentioned, are actually fostered by the digital media. Um, it is much more possible to learn what you want to learn in your own speed, to learn in a constructive web 2.0, web 3.0 way as possible. And as I said earlier, I think people with means and some good role models um, can, uh, can have a tremendous education from a, a cognitive point of view. Where I differ quite dramatically with, with Stephen, but we'll have to continue the discussion elsewhere, is the feeling that um, every individual doing his or her own thing is enough. I think that in any community that's going to be viable, whether it's a school or a professional community, or increasingly the globe, um, it isn't enough just to have the same platform. You have to work to try to wrestle on very difficult issues on which people disagree. Um, living in Canada, you don't have a sense, perhaps, of what happens when we have a totally paralyzed uh, Congress, where there are people who totally disagree, and each side of which is right, and there isn't the slightest scintilla of an attempt to moderate 
between those positions. So goodness knows Barack Obama thought he had those kinds of skills. So I think not only common spaces, not only conversations, but increasingly impressive moderating and modulating to try to bring out the things where people can make common cause is essential. I don't know Stephen very well, but clearly that's the role that he has. And to just to, this is uh, Stephen Hargadon, and just to play out the Gardner Downs little controversy here, one of the decisions we have to make is whether we even want to continue talking to each other. And that would depend significantly on whether there was a Stephen Hargadon who said, you know, I'm going to try to help this happen. So the notion everybody, uh, you know, each person tending his own garden and things are going to be fine, I don't think was ever true. And in the modern connected digital world, I think it's, it's just a, it's a non-starter. So Gary, you oh, oh sorry, Alfie, uh, let me ask this question, then I'll come right back to you. So Gary, you've said that this is an imperfect medium, but we are having the conversation. So um, do does that have value? All dialogue has value. Um, we live in an age where, again, um, as Alfie said, technology is not neutral. It always has affordances and constraints, costs and benefits. And we seem to be fetishizing things like TED, which are highly scripted monologues, as opposed to dialogue. Our society needs a lot more dialogue and discussion. It's critical for democracy. It's critical for progress. It's critical for making um, schools better places for children. Um, but we're, we're operating against the clock here, and there seems to be um, differences without distinction um, that, that are unclear to me. And, um, and we're just sort of making opening statements. And, and it would be nice if we had some way to go beyond opening statements and, and talk about teaching and learning and some things that, that might actually make, make the world a better place for teachers and students. And Alfie, I apologize for interrupting you. Did you want to make a comment? <laughs> no, no, it's not, not a problem. I, I'm inclined to go back to your larger question about how to bring others in on the process of making uh, education more progressive. And for me, that's a question that goes well beyond and to some extent uh, needn't even focus primarily on the technology issues that have dominated this discussion. When I think about ways to invite parents and teachers and other citizens uh, to question the traditional aspects of education, uh, the first thing that occurs to me really has nothing to do with Web X.0. Um, in fact, I'd rather have people in the same room attending to nuance, building on each other, uh, and being able to form the kind of connection, interpersonal connection, that is uh, uh, flattened necessarily when you're at a distance, even looking into a into a, a little camera. Uh, uh, I I'm interested in helping people to think about looking forward and looking backward. Um, I'm distilling an awful lot that I've thought about and borrowed from others over the years. When when people ask me how do you help help people who have accepted too many traditional assumptions about the methods and goals of education to reconsider. And to look backward is to ask, what was it like when you were in school? Tell me about a time when things worked well, when you were excited, engaged in the learning, when you groaned, uh, when the bell rang. What was going on? 
And people tend to offer answers uh, about how I remember the time we were working in a group uh, and I felt like everything clicked and we were learning from each other, not just sitting next to each other. Or the time we went outside the classroom into the community, or the time when we get to decide what it is we wanted to read and do. And what people, even traditional folks, tend to be naming are aspects of progressive education in the best sense of that term. And then the question becomes, don't our kids deserve those components uh, most of the time instead of only occasionally, the way most of us had them? That's the looking backward. And the looking forward is to ask the question, which I begin most of my lectures and workshops with, which is, how, what are your long-term goals for your kids? How do you hope they'll turn out? And wherever I go, I get very similar answers, which I think most of you can guess. And then what we do is we compare what we're actually doing in the classroom or in the family to our own long-term goals, not those of some distant experts, and begin to realize there may be a disconnect. We say we want kids uh, uh, to be happy, ethical, compassionate, responsible people. Uh, is that what we're really promoting through our practices? Are we really helping kids to become lifelong learners when we're boosting test scores or saying, you know, if you're this age, you must be doing long division? So by looking backward at our own experiences and forward at our long-term objectives for our kids, I think we can bring others along to start thinking about moving past what it is we have now, with or without technology. So as Gary mentioned, we do have a clock. We have five minutes left. If, if educators are increasingly connecting with each other, if, if we have the capacity to hold this kind of meeting as imperfect as it is, um, I'm, I'm, I'd like to ask each of you to, to quickly give an idea of what you think we might do to make a difference now. Um, and, and since we just finished with Alfie, can we start with you, Stephen, and, and um, have you answered that first? What, what constructively could those of us who are participating think about doing now to make a difference? Yeah, sure. Um, there's a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is to set an example. I, in fact, I think that's probably the most important thing. It might even be the only thing. Um, you know, it's an old saying, and many people have said it before me. You have to be the change that you want to see in society. There's this presumption that we can somehow propagate through other means what we want to propagate, whether it be through education, whether it be through media, whether it be through political activism. My belief is that these, these methods are overrated and that the best argument for any philosophy is to live that philosophy. The second thing, in addition to playing chimes to people around the world, which I also recommend, is is to create the conditions whereby people can help themselves. Uh, and and I'll, I'll respond to Gary Steger's uh, straw man argument in, in another form. Uh, the, the, the core of the work that I've done has been to attempt to create services and resources that help people 
educate themselves. And then someone's always going to say, well, yeah, but you have to have a certain amount of skills in order to do that. Well, yeah, but you also have to have a certain amount of skills in order to read a math textbook. It's the same argument all the way. Uh, I, I believe in putting resources out there into the community, um, publicly provided, freely accessible. Because in this, this was one of the things that was in Steve Hargenman's primer thing. Uh, you know, a lot of education happens outside the school. I would say, in fact, the majority of education happens outside the school. And a lot of success or failure in education these days is based on socioeconomic status. So measures that we can take that reduce the impact of socioeconomic status on education are those most likely to have the greatest impact. But I do this in a provisioning way rather than in a prescriptive way. Uh, I say make education possible rather than make a certain edit sort of education mandatory and uh, or, or even prescribed. Um, and, and that's the example I try to live and, and that's the service I try to provide. Thank you, Stephen. Howard, uh, final thoughts or ideas for action? I said at the beginning that what's most upsetting to me about the current education discussion, certainly in the U.S., is the uh, foregrounding of test scores and rankings. My work now, and like Steve, I try to do what I practice, what I preach, is to try to create a different central figure, the figure of the kinds of human beings we'd like to have and the kinds of society in which we would like to live. I truly believe if that focus worked, the many of the most vexed educational things we debate would take care of themselves because the United States has been a place that over the centuries people have admired, not because of IQ scores, but because of the kind of society we can be at our best. I think we've completely lost track of that in the last 40 years. So the work that I've been doing with my colleagues has been around the issue of what it means to be a good worker, a good player, that's a digital term, and a good citizen. We've created something called the Good Work Toolkit. There's a website with that name, .org. And we're about to introduce a huge new website called The Good Project, which will describe our good work, good play, good collaboration, um, good participation, good citizenship. And in each case, we're developing toolkits to try to help people not just aspire to these things, but to achieve them. And my discussion about the commons earlier was because I've really become convinced that we can't have any of these goods unless we can talk with each other. And not if we in any particular, but at least have a common vision of where we want to go. That absent, I see nothing but trouble ahead. Thank you, Howard. Uh, Gary? Yeah, I'd love to spend some time um, talking with Howard about his work and about the elements that lead to greatness. I, I'm concerned that um, a great number of, of us have no experience with, with knowing what it takes to be great at something, regardless of the domain. I just spent three days in a recording studio with some of the finest jazz musicians in the world and watched the remarkable um, expressions of their talent and knowledge and 
um, cultural continuum and technique and even the remarkable skills of the engineer who could make magic happen with, with the click of a finger or the, the flick of a mouse. And we live in a society where people don't hesitate to go up to Yo-Yo Ma and say, my nine-year-old plays the cello too. And I wonder how much better schools would be if we, we found a way to provide opportunities for, for children to experience complexity, depth, sophistication, artistry. Um, and I think that comes through deeply meaningful projects. And one of the reasons why I think computers are important is because it allows for a greater breadth and depth and range of projects to exist than they've ever been possible before. Um, I'll, I'll finish by suggesting that perhaps the best thing we can do for children is for them to spend as much time as possible with interesting adults. And a challenge for all of us is to figure out how we ourselves can be much more interesting adults. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to speak with all of you. Thanks, Gary. Final word, Alfie? Alfie, your mic's not on. Sorry about that. Um, I'm going to build on something Howard just said um, with a very specific and uh, heretical suggestion very quickly. Um, we can't make progress in education as long as education's progress is judged by test scores. Uh, in fact, I think standardized tests serve mostly to make dreadful forms of teaching appear successful. And so I think every one of us ought to spread the words to our neighbors and to our students' parents in particular that if you have doubts about the validity and value of those test scores, you should seriously consider uh, not letting your kids participate on testing day. There has been talk about this that is growing now about a boycott, an opt-out movement, and I think that ultimately is going to be the necessary lever to improve education in all respects when the people imposing these tests on us uh, start to worry, what if we gave a test and nobody came? Thanks. Thank each of I really want to thank each of you for attending. I'm, I always feel terrible when we go over because I want to respect your time. And so if, I don't want to rush us off, but I do want to make sure that uh, you know how much we appreciate your being here together, how valuable the conversation has been for me, uh, and thank you. So I'm clapping for each of you. I'm hovering over the smiley face and clicking the applause button. Um, and again, I want to uh, indicate that if you need to drop off, please feel free to do so right at this moment in time. Um, I do want to leave a little bit of time for the audience to continue the conversation. Panelists, if you want to stay, please feel free to do so. Um, so if you would like to make a comment or put something in the chat, we'll, we'll stick around for another 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, you, can, uh, take the micro you can ask for the microphone by raising your hand. Uh, Rita and Hal, I think maybe you were clapping, but if you've raised your hand, please leave it up and I'll give you the microphone. Uh, or feel free to put a question or comment in the chat and we'll let, let uh, the community and or panelists address anything that comes up. We didn't talk much about poverty, although uh, Stephen did, but it certainly feels as though, at least in the United States, this kind of has largely been a driver of problems. Um, Alfie talks about test scores. Are there other kind of critical key issues that anyone would like to identify?
Oh yeah, this is a good question. EdTech startups, and Stephen mentioned privatization early on. It's hard for me to think about school privatization without thinking of um, the sort of perverse economics of our prison system. But but uh, you know, commercial venture, Silicon Valley venture capital funded companies you know, are are they? Can we categorize them in any easy way, or do they just end up being diverse efforts uh, to try and make a difference? So the Bartleby project, I think, was a, a John Taylor Gatto idea, and that's the connection there if um, anybody's not aware of it. Any responses to this question of the um, tech startups? I'll just jump in very briefly. My big concern with EdTech startups is if they begin to undermine the provision of public education. And I'll give you one brief example of what I mean. There was a discussion <coughs> excuse me, recently on an open education resources discussion list uh, about uh, a protest of, I forget what country it was, but uh, the publishers in that country were protesting to the government because the government was distributing educational handbooks for free and the publishers were saying uh, that they should stop doing this. It's unfair competition. And the results, of course, if the government stopped doing that, since it was uh, not a wealthy country, is that most of the people in the country would not be able to get these uh, these educational packages. And that's where the issue comes to a head. Very often, private interest trumps public good. And when private interest trumps public good, then we have a situation where uh, startup culture and, and private investment and uh, privatization generally works against the interest of providing an education or, as I like to say, enable, enabling people to provide their own education. Anyone else? And Rita, I can't tell if your hand is up to ask a question or if you were clapping. If you would like to take the mic, I'm glad to give it to you. Other thoughts um, about sort of the commercial aspects of education? Yeah, I, I, I like to say that in education, good ideas are incredibly fragile and bad ideas are timeless. The bad ideas that we're combating are simple, mechanistic, easily reproduced, easily sold, um, often with, with slick, simplistic slogans like, so much fun, your kid won't know they're learning, or you know, um, parent communication systems that allow dad to sit at his desktop computer and day trade his child every 15 minutes because a new score is expected to appear online. Um, while the stuff that we value, um, it tends to, to be a lot more fragile and susceptible to changes in administration or policy or parental pushback or a new teacher. Um, so I think the the sort of gold rush for using technology to reduce the, the cost of education um, while turning public, public treasure over to private hands is something we should all be concerned about.
Alfie, I don't know if you're still here, but there was a question addressed to you. Um, Heidi says they wanted to boycott tests at their small public school, but they were told that um, if they did so, the district would be shut down because of um, not meet, re reaching a mandatory testing rate. Have you heard that before, and how would you respond? And I'm not sure we still have Alfie here, so we may not get a response on that. Steve, can I answer one of the questions quickly that just appeared? Absolutely. Someone asked a question about Common Core. And um, Common Core is a great example of how change in education isn't, isn't geologically slow. Only bad change in education, I'm sorry, only good change in education is geologically slow. Bad change can happen overnight. I was speaking at the National School Boards Association conference a few months ago and had a couple hundred people in the audience, elected school board members. And I asked for a show of hands, how many of you voted for Common Core? No hands went up. Asked another question, how many of you live in a jurisdiction where a politician campaigned for office saying that we would have some de facto national curriculum? Not a single hand went up. Common Core was created by the Gates Foundation and Pearson and has been forced down the throats of states and local school boards by a Department of Education in Washington that's tying billions of dollars to compliance. Gary's sort of famous phrase is follow the money. Not only Gary's but others, but certainly Gary, you do a good job of uncovering those connections. But I, I think, you know, I, I, there's this issue. We see this kind of issue across the board from uh, environmentalism to the placement of freeways to the management of banks and corporations uh, to labor standards, etc., where we get something very different from what we voted for. And, and for those Americans who are wondering, this is not a uniquely American phenomenon. Uh, it happens in Canada as well. We had a thing called the uh, GST, Goods and Services Tax, uh, which nobody voted for, nobody wanted. It's a regressive sales tax, uh, and yet we have it. And you know, there are many other things that we didn't want and didn't vote for, but have anyways. And so I think there's a, a fundamental weakness in the decision-making system itself. And uh, you know, it's a problem that's larger than education, but I don't think you solve this aspect of education without solving that larger problem. I hate to say that, but I, I really do think that's true. Stephen, it sure feels to me as though what we're seeing in the internet, especially the ability for voice to uh, carry and continue, minority voices in particular, feels as though you're, that this is actually more than just about education. It's largely, it's larger than that. It's about reframing our relationship to institutions. Is that fair? Oh yeah, absolutely. This, this is why I'm so suspicious and skeptical about uh, you know having this in common, sharing that in common, is because when these discussions happen, I'm always the minority voice. I'm never part of the majority voice. And what's worse, I think I'm right. And so 
know, what we have now today are mechanisms whereby these minority voices can be heard and and you know not necessarily carry the day because you know it's not about that but but at least the people who have these min minority views can live by these minority views and it's okay you know um, I can be a socialist and still work for the government it's okay it's fine it, it's it's not a problem and you know this wasn't possible before you couldn't have these minority voices. Uh, where people could connect together, where I could find other people who think like me, whether across the country or around the world. Um, so I'm, I'm losing track of where I was going with that. But I, I really do think that this is important, this, this sustaining and supporting minority voices. I'm intrigued by how this sort of addresses fundamental issues uh, around what it, how we socialize and relate to others and what it means to be a human being and where we um, are how we're influenced and adopt uh, viewpoints and the like um, it does it again this for me leads me down a path of feeling like these are really momentous um, these technologies have the potential to sort of momentously help us redefine our humanity I was sort of thrown off a little bit when I was talking before by the comments that uh, Durf made, uh, but that doesn't change education, Stephen. And this is the basis, too, of some of my reaction to progressive education. The heart, the heart of education is a power relationship. Um, a multiplicity of power relationships, in fact. Uh, and that's the you know, is, is breaking down in some educational systems that are experiencing things like Common Core. The, the primary power relationship, of course, is teacher and student. But, you know, as anyone who grew up in a school knows, there are power relationships within a classroom, on the schoolyard. And then, of course, there are power relationships uh, between uh, the district and the parents. And in the U.S., the mayors get involved, which is, to me, completely bizarre. And Anytime you change the power dynamics, consequently, you change education. And, and what new technology has done has, to, has been to change that power dynamic. And that's why I think it's important. And that's why I think you, know, you, you can't just sort of say, well, it's technology, it's new and shiny and all of that. Uh, you know, even forget about things like social networks and Twitter and, and all the stuff that gets all of the media. The simple act of being able to write an email from one person to another person, very old technology, but still part of new technology, has changed this relationship. Before, students for the most part could not communicate with each other in class during their class. Now they can. Uh, that, and, and they can especially do that if that class is taught online. That changes their relation with the teacher. It gives them more control over their own education. And my thinking is, the more control you can give a student over their education, the more they are likely to own that education. Uh, it addresses issues of motivation. It addresses issues of uh, appropriateness of, of content. It addresses issues of methodology, style, or approach to education. So 
changing the power relation, changing the, the direction of control of an education changes the education itself. And as control migrates out to the learner, I think the educational opportunities improve. And I think, just as an aside, I think really that that, that observation or a variation of that observation was at the heart of progressive education. It's just, it, it's so hard to do it in an environment where you have all of these power relations set up, school boards and teachers and principals and all the rest of it. So one way to take that would be to say that these technologies are going to exert an influence and we can just help sort of magnify the visibility of that influence of helping learners to become agents or self-driven. The other side of it is that in any power relationship, the change in power will create a struggle and that there will be pushback and an attempt to keep the existing power structures. So what is it sort of an appropriate role um, and I think maybe you've answered this already, but you know, being the change, but are there ways in which we can look at the pushback and address those specifically? Well, I, I address pushback by, I was going to say by arming the weak, but that might be a bit militaristic, uh, but by empowering the disempowered. And the most effective way of empowering the disempowered that I have found is to provide an example or a model. And, and people looking, you know, if Downs can do that, I can do that. <laughs> if Downs can do that, anyone can do that, right? And, 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 you know, that's what makes it possible. And it's not, you know, it, it's, you know, this, this resetting of the goal lines. It's this, uh, or, or you might say, reframing uh, of the dialogue. Um, it's doing for yourself the thing that you want students in the classroom to be able to do. Uh, in my case, because DERF is looking for an action point, it means arguing with authority figures in public places. Uh, it means publishing a newsletter and not holding back uh, even if it might uh, cost me some popularity. Uh, it means encouraging my readers to have their dialogue on their own blog rather than filling my comment stream with comments, even though it hurts my quote score. That kind of thing. And uh, Chris is saying uh, it sounds simple. It, it is. It's, it's these many little things, you know, and it's, you know, in, in each action you take, you take an action that is directed toward empowering the other, uh, is directed toward uh, giving them space for their autonomy, um, you know, supporting diversity, etc. So we should probably close up, uh, but Gary, did you want to say anything? Enjoy the rest of your summer. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks everyone. I had fun. I hope you all had fun. And uh, I will enjoy the rest of my uh, summer. Thanks, Steve, for putting this on. I really appreciated the uh, chance to be part of the panel. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, everybody, for being here. What a great conversation.
love the idea of the local becoming national, working locally, knowing that has opportunity to be more visible. Um, I will post the recording to this session at futureofeducation.com. It will also be posted at connecteducatormonth.org. And we'll look forward to other good conversations. Thanks again, everybody. Bye now.